welcome everyone. I know that I mention this each time, um, but I'm really struck by it each time as I sit in the few minutes uh, while people are arriving and watch the names. I turn on the, uh, the little inspector on the side so I can see the names. And when I see each of your names uh, showing up, it's, um, I don't know why I'm, I'm surprised uh, and deeply moved that you choose again and again to, uh, to join this time and this group and this process that's so important to so many people and certainly is for me in my own practice. So let's uh, begin with our sitting. There's a, a phrase which some of you have heard, no doubt many of you, uh, and it's repeated in Norman Fisher's book, Training in Compassion. And it's one of those little teaching phrases, which is uh, from the Zen tradition. Um, it, it's when you're alone, practice like you're with others. And when you're with others, practice like you're alone. And I mentioned it here in the beginning because when we don't see each other, and when we're in our own homes or wherever you are, when you're alone, practice as if you're with others. It's, it's easy when we're alone to think, it doesn't matter how I sit, it doesn't matter what I do really. Um, I can be doing my nails or whatever. It's a little silly, but you know, practice with, um, with your full intention, even when no one sees you. And then when you're with others, practice as if you're alone is the other side, which is, and when we are with others, don't compare yourself, do your practice. So as we sit, realize that you're with others and there's no comparison. Your practice is full and complete in its own and bring yourself fully to that practice, even though no one can see you.
It is said in some of the writings of our Zen ancestors that there's no way to measure the power or impact of this simple sitting, our zazen, that we're engaged in at the moment. Not because it's so small in each of our cases, because it is inconceivable. Just like your care with driving or flying, with recycling, whatever you might do to affect the environment may seem very small, yet it's inconceivable when we all practice. Your one vote may not seem very large to turn an election, but all of us together change the world. Your one act of kindness, of listening, of action, of walking and standing up to injustice, such as those we're facing around racism, may seem small, but it's inconceivable, and together things can change. And just like this simplicity of sitting, it may seem small, but it's only because it's inconceivable. And we sit and we act and we stand and we listen. With some faith. And something larger. That we're participating in. That we're inviting. And really that we're expressing. And this difference is what we call spirituality rather than simply everyday problem solving, which may be an outgrowth. But we have faith in the inconceivable impact of our small, dedicated actions. Then we're opening to something beyond comprehension, but which can be embodied and felt personally and in our everyday relationships and as a generous gift to the whole world. In our beginning verse that expresses these things, we'll do together. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Vast is the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. Wearing the universal teaching, I realize the one true nature, thus harmonizing all being. Last uh, few times we've met at inquiry, I focus quite a bit on um, 
contemporary issues, the content of our practice, which I, I just alluded to. Uh, and today I realized based on some questions I've been receiving and some uh, queries I've had, that actually it would be useful to step back and talk about uh, inquiry itself and some particulars about it, because I think some things in this enormous transition over the last few months, we've missed a bit. Most of us know if we settle that this kind of practice, I'll call it Zen practice, it doesn't have to be called that, but hinges on the question. And our practice doesn't necessarily focus on answers, but on finding a space in which we can sustain uncertainty and remain present and upright in the middle of investigation. If everything changes, foundational insights of the Buddha, and everything is interdependent, interwoven as one whole, then nothing is absolutely certain. And to remain present and upright in the middle of the investigation of this ongoing flux of contingent experience is what we're invited to do. So the practice of sitting meditation involves facing the questions of our lives, learning about questioning, and I don't mean just asking a question, deepening our questions, and allowing questions to arise. And probably the most fundamental question for me, and it, it might be for you, I, th I think I've, I've heard this from many, many people, the fundamental question often is, uh, when we come to inquiry, is like, oh, what are we doing? What, what got us here? In our tradition, we, we sometimes call this the way-seeking mind. How do we come to understand the mind or the heart that has sought this way, that has seeks a path, that's longing for something, that offers ourselves to a practice. How did we get here? What's the path that leads us here? And there are two ways in which this often happens. We either reach some limit in our capacity to cope, some boundary in our own pain or suffering, and we decide we have to turn somewhere for answers. For those of you that have been involved in 12-step programs, um, you would call this hitting bottom, a place where there's nowhere else to go except we're brought to our knees in some way by life. That's one way that people come to spiritual practice. The surrender to something when your efforts have failed. But the other way is to see someone or engage in a community or, or something that seems remarkably free and inspiring, um, where you see the manifestation of that which you're actually seeking and you think, I, I, I want that, whatever that is. So our entry point can be out of uh, an amazing kind of uh, inspiration and goodness. But either way, we're still left with our questions. We're left with the question, which is, how should I live my life? How should I live my life? Is really the bottom question. But an allied question that's very practical right now that I want to speak to is, why has inquiry, why is this process that we're engaged in right now become so popular over the years? It's in many ways, um, when we were able to do the old fashioned thing in the old days, like go into a room together. <laughs> it was one of the things at Apamata which would draw the most people. And there might be many factors that um, made that possible. But I think really because we together in that space and now in this space in the cloud zendo or somebody said the other day it's the Zoom Zendo, we enact all of the factors that go into this call to a deeper practice. 
we bring our difficulties, our struggles, our pains. We bring inspiration and light and beauty when people speak. The, the questions are all some version of how am I to live my life. So everything is, all the ingredients are here. And the entry requirement is rather low. It's, it's not, not a high bar to enter. Just come, sit, listen deeply, open your heart and your mind. And if you feel uh, the courage and the desire or the call to come forward, to offer yourself, not only to your questions, but to other people so that they may question with you. And then we ask the question over and over, using our own particular versions, our own stories, our own narratives, but it's the question. How are we going to live our lives? And from my seat to the particular job that I have, what I've attempted to do is usually I'll offer some aspect of the Dharma, like I've done a few times this today already, something I've been studying or practicing with is alive in me, then hope to demonstrate its relevance in our everyday lives, so it's not some thing that ancient people did in Asia or something, and then open the inquiry process in which very personal explorations and questions can emerge in our uh, Dharma dialogue. So this is where the actual Dharma you know, unfolds, um, among and between and in us all. But sometimes the order is reversed. Instead of offering the Dharma, showing its relevance, opening in our lives, some experience from someone's life opens the Dharma. The inquiry process uh, itself raises questions. Using something that's emerging in someone's life, uh, their practice, and offering me the challenge of placing it within the teachings to demonstrate the aliveness of the Dharma now. So back and forth we go, and a recent question that actually came from the retreat we did in the UK really opened my eyes to something that I had missed. It's a little bit like um, so I know it's an extremely different thing, but it's a similar process about white privilege. It's something that I had taken for granted and didn't question. And the questions that came from that retreat pointed to an oversight. And so I wanted to take up that question just for a bit. It's a very practical kind of thing, but it's worth our time speaking about it. Um, and to put it in context, I want to back up just for a moment. I hope you don't mind my speaking about inquiry in this larger way, I think it's useful. We, um, I began offering this process at the Austin Zen Center um, around 2006 or seven, something like that. A small group came and then larger groups and it was just something that seemed appropriate. It seemed like an expression of what I had to offer in the way I meet people and then when uh, we moved that practice to Appamata, which in those days was everyday Zen and then became Appamata, um, there's a time in which people wanted to access the teachings when they couldn't be there. So we decided we would make audio recordings and make them available. And when we did, we announced that that would be happening and that they would be posted so people could listen to them. And so when people walked in to the entry to Appamata, they would see the ordinary, the flowers, the Donna box, things that one would see when you enter a Buddha hall or a, a Zindo. But also there was a, a sign that we would put up that said, these um, sessions are recorded and will be posted for people to listen to. Uh, so people would, rather than having people sign releases, they understood that if they were going to speak, it would be recorded and that would be the nature of things. That recording process began around 2010 or so, I think I can remember when we did that a good long time ago. Then there was this abrupt shift in which inquiry became a much more widely shared process not only weekly like this through Appamana, but also in each retreat and people from other sanghas were, were joining. 
and included not only um, the video recordings, um, but also this larger Sangha presence and a new online accessibility, but no one put up the sign. There was no message added, which made clear that the recordings would be made widely available. They'd be on the internet, on YouTube, for goodness sakes. And this was inadvertently and inappropriately assumed from the past. All of us have these mental models. I think of myself walking in and sitting down and being at Apamada or being at Holy Wisdom uh, in Madison or sitting uh, at Sheldon in the UK or at the story in Lancaster. So, you know, I have these images of myself in those places. Um, and I forget that it's different now. And there are more people from so many different areas. And there are some people who need to remember that this is, this is uh, how it goes. Otherwise, we're in a constant um, kind of complex and untenable state of trying to edit things out. And I don't know about you, but these little presentations that I do in the beginning are prompts, and hopefully they're helpful, but they're not the deepest teachings. The real dharma unfolds in the inquiry. And so to cut those off would be to take away, I think, some of the things that are most valuable. I'm not arguing for that or in conflict with anyone who feels that it's not useful uh, to have their lives or some of their intimate things placed online. That's just fine. Um, it's also why I spend a good bit of my time with in private interviews um, and consultation with people when, when they want. But there's something so generous and so um, creative about what happens when we're together like this. And I think that's part of why it's been so uh, not accessible, but used by so many people. So please be informed. If you raise your hand to engage with me in inquiry, that interaction will be recorded and posted in the Dharma archives so that other students who cannot be present for inquiry can benefit from the teachings. So just when I say that, please be informed. This is how it will be. Many of you are trained or know about uh, Hakomi, a, a mindfulness-based way of assisted self-discovery uh, in mindfulness. And there's a term that's used in Hakomi called a probe, which means something that triggers or opens or in, invokes a reaction so that we can look at how one um, organizes experience, what habit patterns are. And it sets in motion a way to investigate something that we may not have noticed. And this is, um, this is one of the ways we study the self in Zen. And then we can gather data and look at our thoughts and feelings and embodied reactions. This is some of what goes on in inquiry. And this is part of what this kind of statement might evoke in you. In internal family systems, another skillful means we use, what's called forward, all the protective parts, all the vulnerable parts that are being protected by the managers, provide trailheads, a place to begin an investigation, to follow our questions, passive exploration about how we hold ourselves together and operate often through the self-centered dream that we chant at the end of inquiry, rather than leading to a more liberated sense of self with more wisdom and compassion. So the recordings have been such a probe and have initiated a practice path of these trailheads of investigation so I hope this helps that become just a little bit uh, clearer. I want to say just a couple of more things as I do this broad overview. And once again, thank you for your patience and letting me sort of step back and reflect on these things. Because I also want to mention something that continues to arise when people ask me, is this, is this Dharma practice or, or is this therapy? So what I'm about to say is extremely uh, truncated, but hopefully condensed and helpful for you. 
because I've been engaged in both for decades. Uh, so this is a, just a, a tiny way of my saying what, what I understand anyway. So as a therapist, one establishes a, a confidential relationship in which the archaic roots of dysfunctional behavioral patterns and thoughts and feelings can be explored safely, which usually translates as confidentially. What is it meant by safe in the therapeutic context? Well, hopefully free of shame and outside criticism and enough attunement by the therapist so that the client feels understood and met deeply within this relationship of care and concern so that changes might take place. In other words, in some ways, good corrective parenting within a relationship of earned secure attachment, which is a bit of a technical word, but in which a deep, healthy um, connection can actually be established where it might not have been before. And that's an incredibly useful process and very healing. And the, in Dharma practice, Dharma practice seeks to help you see through the assumed solidity of the self that in psychotherapy we're offering trying to shore up. It questions and even challenges the habits of thought which hold together the constructed self and offers skillful practices to meet and how to navigate the groundless, vast, beautiful, and sometimes terrifying reality in which life unfolds. And this is done in relationships which are kind, generous, sometimes tough, but based in a vow to guide each person to ever-increasing freedom within an ever-changing contingent flow of experience we call life. I know that's a lot, but I hope that you can feel a bit of this distinction, even though they, they do overlap. And effective Dharma relationships, which I hope we have, it is safe to look beyond the constructed self. There's no attempt to mend and bolster the constructed self so much. There are manager practices, which some spiritual systems will offer, which help in the short run, but ultimately they're not transformative. They help you feel better, but not transform and be better. They can translate or reframe experience in ways which are very skillful and very helpful, but they're not transformative. The Dharma, and hopefully a teacher of the Dharma, may pull the rug out from under you, not making sure there's a floor that you stand on, but offering a warm hand immediately to help get you up. And this is a different kind of compassion, hopefully grounded in wisdom and real human maturity, because it's in some ways a less safe endeavor, at least based on the, the, the kind of definition of safety we're talking about. And in this process, we help mature each other. The student and teacher uh, take different roles, but the, the process is a shared maturity where we sit to settle and then open to our embodied immediacy, what's here now. Some dharma is offered into that settled space, which kind of primes the pump to flow get the dharma moving, setting in motion. And then questions or, or other content, you don't have to call them questions. The context for meeting in truth, the old Indian term satsang, meeting in truth, is what we're doing in inquiry, can unfold in ways that reflect the dharma in our everyday lives. And in Zen we call this intimacy, not just relational intimacy, but the intimacy of each thing, meeting each thing fully, and then offering an appropriate response. 
intimate with each moment, with each situation, each relationship, and what's inappropriate unfolding. Because it's answering the question, how are we to live our life? Inquiry, I've said questions, your answers, it doesn't really answer your questions. How am I living my life? So I know this is a rather a long overview, but I wanted to make sure that I kind of brought everybody into a similar place uh, with understanding inquiry and its, its place within our practice. Because I think that I've um, kind of plunged forward without doing that. And some people were confused or uh, maybe even upset that things were put online or recorded without their uh, permission, so to speak. And I completely am sensitive to that. And, and uh, I want people to feel okay. And also to understand uh, how these things move and work. So I appreciate immensely uh, your willingness to be here and the way that you offer yourself to this process. Um, and I want to be able to continue it in a way that feels uh, wholesome and good and in the service of these, these ways of meeting. So now you have an opportunity to raise your hand uh, so that we can, um, can meet. And please, I would recommend if some of you haven't raised your hand before, please do so. Um, I love hearing from and speaking to people I've not spoken to before. But if you're someone who has been in inquiry quite a bit and uh, you might talk to me more regularly, don't hold back. Um, I'm just encouraging um, those of you who might be a little bit shy. There she is. I don't hear you. I see you moving your mouth, but I don't hear it. I understand that you're um, down on the coast, right? No? Uh, let me see. Um, try again. No, I was going to see if it was me. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> and Jessica, I assumed that it wasn't just me. Thank goodness we have Jessica back there monitoring things. Okay, thank you. It's interesting how without words, even just uh, being able to see a face of someone that you have a warm relationship with um, is it as a piece of nourishment. Rosemary. And you need to unmute your microphone. I see that you do have one. It's just muted. There you go. Hi. Hi. Nice to see you. Hello, everybody. Where are you uh, coming from today? Uh, Fort Lee, New Jersey. All right. Great. So near, near the epicenter of yeah, yeah. things. Um, so I am quite new to meditation. Um, it's been a struggle for me. Um, and uh, one of the things that gets in the way is too many projects. And I have a hard time uh, giving them up yeah. and making the time. And I have to say that the quarantine has really helped me mm -hmm. because um, I have more time. I don't have a lot more time, but I, uh, the fact that I don't have to travel to work um, gives me at least that extra time. 
I have resumed journaling first, mm -hmm. and then I have in the past about week and a half a daily meditation. Um, and then I uh, hooked up with Flint and the Appamata Center. So my question to those of you who have been practicing is if you think back on your beginnings, do you have any uh, things to share about what those experiences were and how you were, you know, what the process were, was in, you know, firming up your commitment? Yeah, it's like what the road bumps were and what the helpers were along the way. Were you, were you in my Cape Cod? Two times. That's what I thought. I thought, I know you from Cape Cod. That's Yes, right. and I, I sang one time in one of the classes. Right, I, when I saw your name. Oh, it's so nice. Well, because we're using the, um, uh, this kind of format, you won't hear from other people directly at the moment. Okay. But I'll have to speak for them just for a second anyway. Okay. But it's, it's interesting because what you just described about... Uh, beginning to slow down and beginning to sit a bit. And it sounds like a very wholesome entry point. You actually, uh, and I was thinking about this yesterday. A lot of people say that during the pandemic, it's been, albeit a difficult thing, there's some benefits that come from this slowing. And the same for me, I don't get on airplanes and do a lot of things that I did before. But it became clear to me yesterday that it isn't just things are slower. There are fewer choices. I don't have all of these choices. Should I do this? Should I? They're not there. And it's that reduction in choice, which actually settles my heart a little more. So there's the great benefit of choice we have when we're privileged people in this world, in the West. But sometimes we don't realize the price for all the choices. And there's a deep kind of settling that I feel where even the simplicity of you don't get to choose which restaurant you're going to because you're not going to one, <laughs> you, you know? So I don't know if that makes a difference for you, but it's, it's not just the slowing as the, no, as the choices reduce. Yeah, yes, and I also forgot something really important and that is that I was feeling a lot of anxiety in the very beginning of the pandemic. And um, that, that's when I started meditation. I forgot, well, I forgot to mention that. And that was what you were talking about before. Point, right? It's like, okay, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah, there's, um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name. I'm usually good about book names, but there's a little book that was uh, co-written by Norman Fisher and Sue Moon. By Sh it's in Shambhala. Uh, and if you look at those two authors, and it's about the basics of the kind of questions that you're asking. And Shabala wanted a basic book on entering practice. And so Sue, who's a very um, good friend of ours and who's a very senior female teacher, she's a, a grandma. I love it because when we're in uh, big serious Zen meetings, she's always knitting. <laughs> and then Norman Fisher, who is this... Uh, uh, Sorry, Siri thought I was talking to her. Um, Norman, who's a senior teacher, they decided to have a dialogue. Sue would ask questions and he would answer them and that's the book. So I, I don't know, I can't remember the name of it. If you look it up, I think it'll be useful. Okay. Thank you, thank and you. Thank you so much, it's wonderful to see you again. Yes, yeah, same here. Sorry, we don't get to have another summer, but. Some of you know that I've uh, taught at the Institute for uh, a number of years and uh, unfortunately it's come to an end. We don't have it again. Uh, oh, thank you, Kim, for putting up the name, what is in. Hi, John. Make sure you unmute. Got it. Got it. Can you hear me? I can. Excellent. Okay, well, I think this is relevant, even though it goes way back to the first time that I met you. Mm -hmm. Way back around maybe 2008, give or take. Yes. And uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time, which her main name list out of concern for her privacy, 
uh, brought me to a meeting that you hosted. I've been 40 or 50 people sitting around in a circle. Sure. And at one point you said, the way is beyond right and wrong. I am beyond good and bad. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't realize the extent to which that was important to me until I woke up the next morning and I was reeling. Oh. And it was that profound for me. And luckily, uh, my girlfriend understood how that could be because part of my struggle uh, before that had been, you know, whether I or my actions were good or bad. Mm -hmm. And it was really a deep thing for me to feel that I wasn't bad. Mm -hmm. That was huge. So yeah. that got me started on this path of uh, working with you and, uh, and all the other people. So it somehow allowed an entry point for you that this wasn't going to be some gauntlet of constant uh, evaluation. Right. <laughs> yeah. okay. a, a path of uh, possibility. There you go. Mm -hmm. It was. Yes. Good. Yeah. So that's a, um, a, a beautiful story. And I'm glad to hear it, even after all these years. Mm -hmm. It's also a good example of how I might say something that in that particular thing I said was a reflection of some classical teachings mm -hmm. landed in a way that I sometimes never know how it will land. Right. And even, <clears throat> even you didn't realize it. it had like a delayed charge. Mm -hmm. it, it only, it was time release Dharma. It came, it happened the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And even after all these years, here it is um, still alive in you and we're talking about it. Yes. Yeah. It reminds me a long time ago, uh, I was at a theological seminary. They're talking about how uh, in other fields, you, you get the response right away of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But a minister sometimes doesn't realize what he or she says may happen years or decades later. Oh, and goodness. so uh, this is a case of that being true for you, evidently. Yes, yes. And also, like you, people recount to me uh, what they think I said. <laughs> Did I get it wrong? No, <laughs> I'm just saying I often get and I'll think, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe I did say that. I don't know. It's, uh, sometimes it's an interesting interpretation, but I, I, to I totally get what you were recounting and that, uh, that made sense to me. Okay. Good to see your face. Thank you. Likewise. Yes. And thank you for coming forward. Sure. And also for that memory. It's really nice uh, to feel that there's, there's a resonance over these years that's made a difference. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. And, and thank for your, your former relationship, which was a, a generous woman to help you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. Mm, you're welcome. Aha. Uh -huh. Now you have to unmute it. Yes. Now can you hear yeah, me? Okay. Without even updating. Hi, Flint. Hi. Um, <clears throat> yes. I just wanted to um, share, and I don't know if I'm asking advice, but just share what right now. <laughs> um, Mitch and I are at a beach, and and two days ago, um, a guy set up on the beach and flew his. American flag, which is fine, but I told Mitch I didn't have, you know, brought up a bad feeling in me. And then the next day he, on a very tall flagpole, put up his Confederacy come and get it flag. And, you know, I just observed, well, first I was hooked and just so angry in these times. I mean, I sat down with Mitch and said, I felt like fantasizing, I felt like spitting at him and saying, really, right now? You know, that was what my initial reaction was. And settled down some after that. And so I'm just trying to observe, you know, today I'm at the point of, you know, he's, I'm guessing, feeling very um, threatened and scared or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to share that, you know, this is, I know this is normal and this is what's coming up right now, but I am... I am surprised at the intensity of the feeling. I mean, I'm almost in tears right now sharing it, but, and mm -hmm. so could some advice on the middle way or, or um, your thoughts, well, please. You're giving a, a 
very, very good example of what I was describing as a probe. Yeah. <laughs> Something happens and it sets up a, and then you begin to see what a probe does, those hope you turn this way. Yeah. What am I, you, it's easy to focus on him, mm -hmm. but actually you're not, what do I carry? What kind of uh, discriminations or hates are just, do I carry? Mm -hmm. And what's it, what kind of shock waves is it set up in me so that I would actually act in ways that I would feel bad about, mm -hmm. uh, which would be in some ways maybe a reflection of what you think of him. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know this because you work on yourself. Uh, so, um, and it's unpleasant when we have that kind of disturbance because then our job is not to push it away because it's giving us information, but how to regulate our system well enough that we can work with it instead of just be overwhelmed by it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes like you're describing, you're on the edge of feeling the overwhelm uh, and then working with it. And, but our job is how can I stay regulated enough? Not too sad, not too mad, not too scared, not too confused, a little but uh, so that I can not do something harmful that would make things worse. Mm -hmm. either inside or out. And that if there's going to be an appropriate response that I might offer, I'd be able to offer it. Maybe not to him even. Maybe it'll be somewhere else in the world. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine how a dialogue could even happen and realized I don't, it can't with this, with how I am right now. And, and I would imagine, this is my projection, there's no uh, invitation to safety there. <laughs> no. Uh, there's an only invitation for confrontation and that's well, not something that you're yeah. invited to. So it's, it's good to, to maybe stay away and then just work with, and once again, this is inconceivable. You don't know what your good efforts or Mitch's good efforts would do in the world, but this sets up a resonance that says, oh, there's a need for it. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever we can do since this exists in the world, just like we've been seeing on television quite a bit, and these things do exist, how can I be more aware and more responsive, more responsible in, the, in a world such as this, where this can still be happening. And our, our practice doesn't solve all those problems, but it helps us with the regulation part where we can find a larger space to hold these things which are inconceivable in kind of a negative way. It reminds me a little bit of the, I think I mentioned the other day, the uh, Bearing Witness retreats that Bernie Glassman's done, either the street retreats homeless or the, the retreats at Auschwitz, you know, with the con they're very harsh things in some ways, but what they're doing is saying, okay, let's turn right toward that, which we think we want to turn away from and uh, see if there's a way in which there's can be greater peace in the world. Not because we change people out there, but we become that, that function of peace in the world. Okay. Thank you for, um, it's, it's important sometimes just to have a place to say it. Well, that's so, what I realized. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you, Clint, for getting me. Thank you. I'm glad you came back. <laughs> and by the way, as Emma's coming on, I want to just say, this is a bit of a, an advertisement. <clears throat> Hi, Emma. Uh, I think you're, you need to unmute yourself there too. I just wanted to say to the side, if you don't mind, uh, if you, not you, Emma, everyone watching and listening, if you haven't seen the Netflix documentary 13th, please do so. It's about the 13th Amendment and it's a brilliant uh, brilliant. Uh, so if you don't think you need to see it uh, too bad, you do watch it <laughs> if you can. Uh, I don't usually nudge people that strongly, but please do. Okay. Thanks, Emma, for your patience. Hello, Flint. Hi. So nice to see you. And um, it's incredibly nerve wracking. It's the same as sitting in the chair. <laughs> where, where are you coming from? This today? Lancaster. Oh, yes. Right. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, in the talk, when you said about 
uh, the difference between psychotherapy and inquir inquiry, what we're doing now. Um, I think I've heard you in the past describe the two as like a spiral, twin strands. Yes, yes. When I, when I use the model of growing up and waking up, those two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I struggle with, I'm, I'm, I'm about to start my training for psychotherapy, hopefully in September if it goes ahead. Um, and this idea of in psychotherapy, you're shoring up the self. And in practice, um, I think the first ever retreat I came to was the, the Dogen one that you did in Lancaster. Yes, and you talked about um, knowing the self to dissolve the self. Right. Mm -hmm. So I still find the two things completely almost at odds with each other. And I just, yeah. I'd like you to say a bit more about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe this will be easier. <clears throat> okay. We obviously live in these very human animal bodies. And we live in these relationships, which are crucial because we're the kind of an animal called a mammal. We require each other. Uh, and because of the way we're connected and the way our brains work, uh, attachment and attunement emotionally is, is really important. And that system can get messed up really easily and we have damage and we need to we need to help, get some help with it, fix it. Mm -hmm. Those, I talk about that as the content of our life. Spirituality is in some ways about understanding the context, the space in which all that happens, the larger field of body, mind, heart, spirit, a universal. Uh, if we focus just on the one, we get lost in all the minutiae of the daily and it just spin around as on one side. If we get lost in the other, we're too detached and out there and ethereal and mm -hmm. not grounded. But if we have both, then we have that double. That's actually why we do this, yeah. <laughs> like okay. bringing these two perspectives together, because it's important to have both an attention to the details of what we are as sensitive human beings so that we can be wholesome and healthy and mature. Yeah. And we need to understand the context in which we are born and come into this world and die and leave. And that context remains and is shared by everyone in one. So it's, it's like two different views of the same thing. That's a really, that's a really helpful image. I, I, I felt like I really felt that because I felt in my own life, I've, I've kind of really swung between the two. True. Um, Natural. Yeah. And you can tell that as a therapist, um, or as a spiritual practitioner, they're not actually separate. Mm -hmm. They're different faces of the same thing. That's why I call it the double helix because they're connected. Mm -hmm. There's the growing up side of maturing as a as personhood. And then there's the waking up, these non-dual practices that take us into the larger context in which all of that is happening. Yeah. And yeah. one without the other is just not quite complete. Yeah. And both are Yeah. No, that that really makes a lot of sense. I think, I think that I really needed to hear that right now. Cause I think what lockdown has done is it's, is it's, con it's for me anyway, it's concentrated right down on the, on the kind of, you know, the minutiae in a way. Yeah. Well, I think your own experience, I would guess will prove what I'm about to say, which is psychotherapy alone isn't enough. Mm. If you work on yourself, you can get wrapped up in self-identification, self-reflection forever, and there's always something to work on, or just around and around. Yeah. Step off. And sitting isn't enough. Because you can sit with trauma and all it does is make you feel terrible. Yeah. So you need some so, but if you put them together, yeah. So you're always moving back and forth because it's we're one human. Yeah. Um, but sometimes understanding the tracks is useful. That's really, really helpful. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for your question. I, I imagine other people may have benefited, I hope, from it as well. I hope so. Thank you. Give my best to everybody in Lancaster. I will do. Anyone remaining?
it's just fine. We have just a few more, <clears throat> a few more minutes. One of the things that uh, you might not be aware of, um, oh, someone did. No, just a thank you. Here comes someone. Hey, Pets. You're still muted. Oh, Sorry. There you go. Ah, it's so good to see you. It is so wonderful to see you and hear your voice. This has been just, this entire day has been such an amazing journey for me. Um, I was working earlier with someone in, in our program and we were talking about um, this self-reflection or getting to a place of neutrality, mm -hmm. right? Um, to stop creating the virtual reality in our heads and then reacting to it with emotion or br that bringing on the emotion and then the reaction. And everything you said it, it was just so peacefully put into place, all of what we were reading and discussing today. But I love, you know, knowing the self to dissolve the self, mm -hmm. you know, to take me out of what it is that's going on and happening. Mm -hmm. um, and yet not denying that it's occurring. The, the actual quote, the, 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 at least the translation that I'm used to, says to study the Buddha way or just the way of awakening is to study the self. Yeah. Study the self is to forget the self. Yeah. And the forgetting doesn't mean you forget who you are. It's you loosen this attachment. Of judgment. Yeah. And our attachment to the thinking, this is all my self-centered dream is who I am. You know, to study the Buddha ways to study the self. Study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. It means we begin to realize we are only here as the result of the beneficence and grace of everything else. Yeah. We don't maintain this life in a self-centered, selfish way. And I know in your program that that's an important thing. Yeah. That leads to problems. Oh, <laughs> yes, it does. <clears throat> and I just wanted to uh, throw one thing in. Someone had asked if anyone had difficulties or what their journey was like with meditation. Oh, yeah. And I think the biggest turning point for me was when I heard an interview between the Dalai Lama and I believe it was Fareed Zakaria, who got up and meditated with him at three o'clock in the morning. And when the Buddha came out of his meditation and they started speaking, when the Dalai came out and they started speaking, um, Sanjay said, I, I, sometimes it's just so hard. I have such trouble with meditating. And the Buddha said, me too. And all of a sudden, all of that tension I was feeling and difficulty I was having, and I'm not getting to the right spot or I'm not understanding this, just melted away. Mm -hmm. And I have had just beautiful experiences with it since then. So <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it is. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I was noticing there are several folks from our uh, contemplative uh, photography retreat that happens sometimes here in Molokai. So it's great to, to see all of them. I see that it's, uh, we've come to the end of our time. And um, so let's uh, together um, recite the four practice principles. We'll do that three times as we've, we've often done. These are available on the Abhimata website, by the way, if you want to know uh, the verse of the robe that we do in the beginning and the four practice principles at the end. And they, <clears throat> in some ways, mirror what we're talking about. The, the robe chant suggests vast is the robe of liberation. It sp speaks about the, the inconceivable space in which um, we understand the unity of all beings. The four practice principles talks about the practicality of uh, being caught in our self-centered dream and how we open. So just know that these uh, are ways of helping us remember. So together we say, uh, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, 
life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Each moment, life as it is, the only teacher, being just this moment, compassion's way. Thank you, everyone. And I look forward to seeing and connecting uh, with you again next week. And I think Jessica. Yes, thank you uh, indeed, everyone. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for everyone's generosity as always and um, share my screen with you. Hopefully you can see my screen. I'm just taking us to the Appamata website the contribute page. And I've, I've had a few questions about the contributions because uh, Appamata and Flint and Peg and all of our teachers are directly supported by your generous contributions. And so I just wanted to point you to this uh, website and also show you here on the sidebar uh, under general support you can you can contribute directly to Appamata or you can contribute directly to uh, the teachers so for Flint that would be here um, so just to 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 share that with you um, and thank you all for being here <laughs>